might our hearts be such that we don't wait until the national holiday of uh, and celebration of Thanksgiving to express our thanks to you, but might we do so every day? And so, God, prepare our hearts even now, pour out your spirit up upon us. Might he teach us again and, and lead us into your truth, and we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Psalm 113, no inscription here, so we have no idea who wrote this psalm, and the content gives us no hint in regard to that. We just simply know it's someone who loved to praise the Lord, and so he's writing with an encouragement, in fact, even a command to praise our Lord God. He begins with with the words, praise the Lord. Now, Psalm 113 is the first, uh, in fact, from Psalm 113 through 118, we, we see that these are the Hillel Psalms. In fact, they're called the Egyptian Hillel song, Psalms because these were uh, um, traditionally sang during Passover. A couple of other feasts as well, but Passover uh, uh, mainly, and, and so it has received the title, it, the, these uh, six psalms, the um, Egyptian Hallel. Um, they would be sung not only during Pasto Passover, but the Feast of Pentecost, and as well as the Feast of Tabernacles. But as we go through these psalms, you'll see the way that they relate to that. And of course, Psalm 113 that we just read, there would be no indication at all that this might be something uh, saying during Passover because of the delivery of the people of Israel from Egypt, but Psalm 114 is all about that. We'll see that in just a few moments as we get there. Interestingly, there's a note or there's a verse in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. This is after the, uh, the Lord had celebrated the Passover meal um, with his apostles. And in that verse it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So as, Jew, as Jews always have done, they would sing songs during Passover. And this psalm that we're reading tonight is indeed one of those psalms that they sang on that evening. Now, I do have a note that uh, uh, David Guzik gave, uh, gives. He, he wrote that they would sing Psalm 113 and 114 before the celebration and then 115 uh, to 18 after the meal. So uh, that, that's the way that they would do this. But it's just interesting to be reading this. And it's something that we don't really think about all that often. I know I don't. Maybe you guys do. Uh, perhaps Nat as a worship leader does, but, you know, it, it doesn't occur to me all that much that, you know, as I, as I go through the Psalms that, you know, the Lord Jesus sang these Psalms. He sang these Psalms. I mean, I, he was a Jewish man. Of course he sang them. He went, he went into the temple when he was in Jerusalem. While he was uh, in the Galilee area, he would go into Bethsaida or C Capernaum and uh, the, the synagogues there and, and, and sing the Psalms. You know, so it's just kind of a cool thing to, 
to acknowledge that. So even as we go through these psalms, particularly these, with a special um, emphasis uh, on praise and thanksgiving for God doing his work and delivering his people from Egypt, I think it's just a cool thing to, to acknowledge as we look at this. So these first uh, three verses in this psalm, uh, just looking at the, the first verse in particular, uh, praise the Lord, praise, O servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. So we see that the servants of the Lord are commanded to praise him. We see some very similar words in Psalm 135 in the first verse. Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, O you servants of the Lord. I mean, almost exactly the same. So these are very, very common ideas as we, and very common thoughts, very common commands that we see in the Psalms, aren't they? Praise the Lord. We see praise the Lord often. The last couple of psalms that we looked at, Psalm 111, 112, uh, began that way. Praise the Lord. These uh, uh, songs of praise are certainly worthy to look at and, and, and worthy to, um, to emulate. We as God's people are also commanded to praise the Lord. And we need to consider that as we look at this psalm. All the various things that are mentioned here, we are to do them. We are to, we're to praise the name of the Lord. We are to praise Him. We are His servants. As we look at verse 2, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We need to be doing this tonight and for the rest of our days. Not just our days on earth. Forevermore, right? Forevermore. So when we enter into the presence of the Lord, of course, we're not going to have any problem remembering to do that. <laughs> we're going to be in His presence. We're not going to have any problem with distractions that might take us away from our intent in our lives to honor and worship Him and praise Him all of our days because He will be totally in our focus. Uh, not so now. So many distractions. So many distractions. And we can often, you know, make some kind of commitment. I mean, here we are Thanksgiving. We're closing in on the end of the year. That means New Year's Day is coming up and resolutions, right? And, you know, we might, we might resolve once again to um, do, a little be do a little bit better in our spiritual life. Do a little bit better with our devotional life. You know, this year we're going to make it all the way through the Bible. You know, stuff like that. You know, uh, the, the, the resolutions that come in. I don't think there's anything wrong with making resolutions. I don't. I just don't think that we should wait until January 1st. I think we ought to do it whenever the Lord leads us to make a re resolution. Whenever he points out something that's going on in our lives that ought, that ought not to be, then we need to resolve to get rid of that. Or he points out something that we ought to be doing that we're not. We ought to resolve to give more diligence in doing that particular thing, right? You know, not, not just wait until January 1st and the New Year's resolution, you know. And certainly today, you know, uh, New Year's Day is something like, oh, 40 days or so from now. You know, um, we ought not to be waiting until then. If the Lord's speaking to your heart right now, don't wait till. Uh, January 1st, 
today resolve to do what it is that God's calling you to do. Charles Spurgeon wrote this in regard to this song. He wrote, Dr. Alfred Edersheim tells us that the Talmud dwells upon the peculiar suitableness of the Hallel to the Passover. Quote, since it not only recorded the goodness of God towards Israel, but especially their deliverance from Egypt, and therefore appropriately opened with praise ye Jehovah, ye servants of Jehovah, and no longer servants of Pharaoh. I like that a lot. You know, I mean, that, that's exactly what the Lord did for his people. He removed them from the service, from, from their service to Egypt and Pharaoh in particular, so that they could worship him, so that they could praise him. In fact, that's what uh, the Lord instructed Moses to tell Pharaoh in his first meeting. Let my people go that they may worship the Lord. That's what he told them. That's his purpose for them. That's his purpose, of course, for us as well. And when we are commanded, guys, to praise the name of the Lord, basically, we are to praise his character. The, the name of the Lord is expressly a, a revelation of his character to us because the name means something. God's name is expressive of who he is. I am that I am. I am and always will be. I am the, the self-sustaining one. I am the everlasting one from beginning to end. I am. Um, I am whatever you need me to be. These things that we can relate what, what his name actually means. But in terms of his character as revealed, um, in Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7, we see these words, after Moses had requested from the Lord that he show him his glory. We see that in the 33rd chapter. Then in chapter 34 of Exodus, that's what he does. And verse 5 to 7, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Notice he proclaimed the name of the Lord. Then we have various character traits as he's proclaiming the name of the Lord, right? And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we see these character traits of the Lord. Now, this isn't a, an, an exhaustive list by any means, but it gives us a good idea as, as God declares himself, as he, as he reveals himself, proclaims the name of the Lord. This is what he tells Mo Moses. A merciful and gracious. And note that merciful or mercy is the only uh, uh, 
characteristic that's mentioned twice here. Merciful and gracious there in verse 6, and then verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands. We know, of course, mercy is an extension of, of the love of God toward us. Really, all these things are, to, uh, quite frankly. But we see an idea of, of what God is like. And then we see that God says, by, by no means clearing the guilty. And this speaks of his, of his righteousness, his, his righteous judgment, uh, that God is just in all that he does. And he doesn't just simply clear guilt from anybody. Yet our guilt has been cleared because Jesus took our sins upon himself and died in our places, didn't he? He removes the guilt. He removes the shame. So he doesn't just clear us. Clear us. Jesus paid the price instead of us paying the price, right? Because the grace and the mercy of God. And so th th that, that's what we see there in Exodus chapter 34. I could go a lot uh, deeper into that. We just simply don't have time this evening. But another thing I want to remind you of in regard to this idea of praising the Lord or uh, praising the name of the Lord, uh, you'll note in your Bibles that, again, that word Lord is all capital letters, which means it is the name of God that is written down, Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahweh or Jehovah. And that's an important thing for, uh, for, for us to, to see uh, because as the Lord's name is there, his name is there in representation of the God of Israel whose name is Yahweh as opposed to the gods of the other nations, the false gods of the other nations, right? Right? Because we know there's only one God. That's the God of the, of the Bible. His name is Yahweh. Um, and his name is, is, is written down here. Uh, the, other, the other gods, the, the gods of the other nations, which actually don't exist, but they are simply as, well, as, as Paul the Apostle wrote to Timothy, they, they are um, teachings, the doctrines, of demons, doctrines of demons. Any other God who is worshipped by any people, whom, whomever they may be, uh, is, is worshipped because demons inspired them and gave them doctrines about this so-called God who we know is not a God at all, right? Doctrines of demons. That's a sad thing. Sad in that there are people who actually follow these gods who don't exist. They think that they are somehow going to be better off in worshiping these gods who don't exist. Doing the sacrifices, obeying, whatever it is that they do to maintain their relationship or maintain their standing in the eyes of this God who doesn't exist. And believing somehow there's some kind of an eternal uh, um, award or reward, I should say, probably, 
eternal reward for their following after this God who doesn't exist. Now that's sad because there are many people in our world today who are worshiping false gods. Many people around us. We're not just talking about in foreign countries. And we're not talking about people who came here from foreign countries where they have predominantly a different religion. Muslims, for example. The God of, Mus- the, the God of Islam doesn't exist other than the possibility he may exist as a demon posing as a god. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't that what the Bible teaches us? That's sad because these people think that they're going to have some kind of afterlife. Well, they will. But it's not going to be what they think. And when I say afterlife, I should say probably after existence, but it is spiritual death in the sense of not being in the presence of God. But, but it, it, it's just a, a sad, sad thing. But the fact of the matter is that these uh, foreign gods competed with Yahweh for the attention and the praise and the worship of the people of Israel. And when we go through the Old Testament, many times we see the, 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 the people of Israel falling away from worshiping the true God, their God, their, uh, Yahweh, and worshiping the gods of the people. That is why they, they were sent uh, uh, in, into Babylon. That's why the Lord allowed Babylon to defeat them, even to destroy the temple. You know, it, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. So, so these other gods that were worshipped by the people around them, the, the Baals, for example, Ashtoreth, Molech, Dagon, whatever they may be, there were uh, uh, dozens if not hundreds of others. In fact, in the Hindu religion, um, I have been told, and I've read this, that there are something like three million gods in that religion. Crazy, crazy. But that's that's the world around us. We might ask, in our culture today, of course, we're the United States is a melting pot. We have immigrants coming in from from all over the place. That, that that's our tradition, and uh, it seems that we've got more illegally coming in than legally lately. But point is many people from other nations bringing their lifestyle here, bringing their gods here that they worship. And so we, see, so we live in a multicultural, uh, a multi, multi-god-worshipping, if you will, kind of a culture. Uh, a lot of false religions around us. But what would be, you know, a, a question we might ask for the average American, um, what are the gods that compete for our devotion, compete with Jesus? Let me read a passage to you. In fact, I, I would encourage you to mark this in your Bible. This is an important passage. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. 
The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, writes this, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Difficult times will come. Dangerous times will come. For, for men will be, now look at this list, watch this. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. This is Paul's uh, description, but also his instruction there at the end to Timothy. Stay away from these people who are like this. A list of the times that we live in. But in particular, three things here. Men will be lovers of themselves. Men will be lovers of money. And then in verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All these thing, other things are you know, basically uh, be behavioral kind, uh, kind of things that take place because... They are lovers of themselves and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure. That, descri that de describes the time that we live in, I think. But particularly those things, self, money, and pleasure. I think in our culture, these are three of the primary things that take us away from worshiping God. Being a lover of ourselves, love of money, and love of pleasure. Now, tomorrow, we're going to take great pleasure in a great Thanksgiving meal. Are we worshiping that turkey as we eat it? Are we worshiping the taste of it? I mean, can we enjoy things and not be a lover of pleasure? Well, I think so. But, certainly got nothing to do with Thanksgiving meals in, a, in, in and of itself, but um, we as Americans, we, we, we love to eat. And one of the things we even talk about is when we have our, for example, our, our koinonia day and we have our lunch afterward and we'll talk about how, you know, I mean, some of the great, the best fellowship comes while you're eating together, right? We'll kind of say that. But, you know, would I be wrong to say that gluttony is one of the accepted sins in our culture, even within the church, right? Just, just saying, just making a point. But I think that these sins, these gods, we establish gods by the way that we allow them contro to control our thoughts and our choices. That's basically how we establish what a god is in our life. God is a title. Yahweh is the God of Israel. He's our God too. 
Jesus is our God as well. The Holy Spirit is our God as well. Three gods, three persons within the Godhead. Amen. So those are things I just wanted to kind of point out as we're looking at this. Now, going on, verse 2, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I, I pointed out that idea of forevermore. We, we just never will stop. There aren't, there aren't appointed days and it's not going to come to an end forevermore. Then we see in verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. So from the rising of the sun to its going down, this doesn't mean that we stop praising him when the sun goes down. And then when it comes back up again, we start praising him until it goes down, then we stop. That's not what it means. It simply means that we're to praise him all of our waking hours. All of our waking hours. We just simply don't stop. But there's also something else involved here. From the rising of the sun to the time that it goes down, um, from what direction does the sun rise? Rises in the east, right? That would be this way. It rises in the east and it sets in the west. So there's a spatial aspect to it as well. As far to the east that we can go, and as far to the west that we can go, we praise him. So it's like all the time in all places. That's basically what this is referring to. Going on, verse 4. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. God is high, Yahweh. Again, that's his name. Yahweh is high above all nations. All the nations around Israel at that time, all the nations around Israel today, all the nations in the world today, God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is high above every one of us. Every single nation. That means he has authority over everyone. He's Lord of all, right? And he has power and control over every nation, every individual. That's who God is. So we see that expressed here. He is high above the nations and the nations that do not worship and honor the God of the Bible, they still are subject to answer to him. If they don't, maybe during this life they, they don't really acknowledge it, they don't feel the need to, perhaps they don't feel any pressure to do so based on the culture in which they live. But there's going to come a day when they will wish that they had. There will be a day in which they wish that they had. His glory is above, uh, excuse me, he, he, he is high above the nations. And also we see that his glory is above the heavens. Remember in Psalm 103, we, um, we read in verse 11, and th this is a very a familiar verse to us, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. 
the heavens as, as the heavens are high above the earth. There we see uh, King David who wrote Psalm 103 talking about how God's mercy is as the heavens above the earth. If you remember, we were looking at, well, just how far above the earth are the heavens? You know, and I, I, I calculated it based on something that I read about a recent discovery of a galaxy that's out there in this new space tel telescope. I'm forgetting the name of that telescope right now, James something. Uh, but um, I think it was 3.4 billion light years away, this galaxy. 3.4 billion light years. It would take you 3.4 billion years to get there traveling at the speed of light. That's crazy. That's insane. But that's how high his mercy is above us. Remember, I was talking about that. Well, here, this is even greater than that. His glory is above the heavens, not as the heavens. His mercy is as the heavens. His glory is above that. That's pretty crazy, huh? I mean, it, it's incredible to think on that. You know, we, we have no way, I mean, we, we, don't under, we don't understand that. We don't. H have no idea. Other than, than, wow, that's a really big number. You know, I mean, that, that's, about, that's what we do <laughs> with, with those kinds of things. But his glory is even beyond that. It's beyond his mercy in terms of its greatness and its distance from us, his, his glory. Now the word glory has to do with, glory, but the base root of the uh, uh, Hebrew word for glory is weight. You know, it just, it's kind of like substance, who he is. You know, that's what it's talking about. His glory, I mean, the, the substance of him. So it's, like it, it's just a, a, an incredible thought to be thinking of that. But his glory above the heavens. And as we, in our lives, you know, make a commitment to live our lives in such a way that God is glorified, I mean, we're, we're attempting to live in some rarefied air right there. His glory is above the heavens. We can only do it as he sustains us. There's no one like him, verse 5. The questions are asked. Who is like the Lord our God? Who dwells on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? Who's like our God? Well, there's no one like him, we know. But a, a, a little bit of a description of who he is, what he does. He dwells on high. He humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. Even to, according to what is written here in this verse 6, he humbles himself, he lowers himself so that he can view the things in the heavens and on the earth. But even within the heavens, 3.4 billion light years away from us, 
he lowers himself to be there. Again, his glory is above the heavens, right? This is is some amazing thoughts here. But also we see the idea of him humbling himself to behold the things in the heavens and on the earth. Um, I can't help but think of a passage in Philippians 2 in which Paul writes about the humility of Jesus. The humility of Jesus. I want to read, let's follow along as I do. And guys, again, this is another passage that is a very important one. It certainly is an important one for me. The Lord has used it tremendously in my life and in his, as he's pointed out, his, the need to change me in a particular area. And this was one of those areas I needed to be humbled. And still do from time to time, certainly. In Philippians 2, verses 3 to 8, Paul is writing to the Philippian church. And he said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind, what mind? Well, this lowliness of mind that values others to be more important than we are, uh, that, that uh, values others to be um, uh, greater than, than we are. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus had this mindset. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or he emptied himself. He divested himself of of, of certain uh, qualities of deity. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now that that is such a, a, a beautiful and weighty passage that speaks of the mindset of Jesus and his humility who considers us to be more important or some translations even read better than himself. Now, you and I know that that cannot be true. There's no human being who is more important or better than Jesus. But that's what love does. Love looks at us that way. The love of God through Christ looks at us that way. So he considers us to be more important. He values us that much to even be better or more important. And we are to look out for one another's interests, not just simply our own. My eyes have to be on you and your need rather than me and my own. And so the question, well, what about me as a Christian? I'm not to go there. If I'm going to follow Jesus, 
I don't go there because I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about your needs, how I can bless you. That's what Jesus did. He considered you to be more important than himself. That's why he died on the cross, taking your sins upon, upon himself, that you might have, that your greatest need <laughs> would be met, your need for spiritual life, his life. And he emptied himself, emptied himself. Um, Philippians 2.7 has been a very important verse for me in my life. This idea of Jesus emptying himself. We used to sing, we used to sing a song, uh, Empty Me, Asking God to Empty Us. And when we, when we would sing that song, I, I would be thinking, no, no, I need to empty myself. It's a choice that I have to make. Now, God might do some things to make me, to make me want to be empty, or to realize there's a need for emptying. But I have to cooperate with him in the idea of emptying myself, right? Jesus emptied himself. I want, if I want to be with like him, I'll do that. It's an incredible, incredible passage. But, but Jesus himself, in order to become a man and dwell on this earth in human form, as we say, the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of man, he had to take a huge step downward in humility. Huge step. And that tells me if he took that kind of a step, I can't lower myself like he did himself. I can't empty myself like he did himself. But I can't empty myself of what I do have, of who I am, in the sense of making others more important and, and not valuing what other people think of me but valuing other people around me and living to meet their needs living to meet to meet the needs of people around us and so the humility of Jesus Philippians 2 7 in the amplified version of that verse and the amplified version says that Jesus stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity so as to assume the guise of a servant, slave, in that he became like men and was born a human being. So Jesus taking that step downward to become like us. Right? To become like us so that he could take away the sins of the world so that he could take away your sins and mine. Let's move on, verse 7. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. What a beautiful passage. 
That's what Jesus did. Being God, he became poor. He emptied himself so that we might gain his riches. Not, be, not being God, but to have his life. Have the life of God as he gives us that life based on the work of Christ on that cross. Verse 8 says see that, that he may seat him with princes. Job in 36, Job 36 verse 7 uh, says, He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. Those who follow him, those who belong to the Lord, that's where we are. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 4 through 6, it's a familiar passage. But God, love those two words, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, I, I said earlier that mercy is an extension of his love. Well, he gives us mercy because of his great love. He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, sitting in the realm of the King in heaven with him. Amazing what he's done for us. Are you, are you ready to give thanks to him? Oh, amen. And then the idea of a barren woman, you know, um, when the people of Israel were drawn to Egypt because of the, of the famine and Joseph was there, you know that story. Well, when all of Israel and basically all the family of Jacob at that time, uh, the households of, 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 of Jacob and his descendants, they came to Egypt with 75 people. And 400 years later, they left from Egypt with about a million and a half, maybe two million people. The barren woman. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. And so God kept them there, protected them, grew them up, multiplied them, became a mighty nation, and then brought them back into the promised land. And then, of course, this psalm ends the same way it began, praise the Lord. You know, might Yahweh, might the God of Israel, might our God always be praised. Let's, let's move on to Psalm 114. As I mentioned earlier, this psalm gives us detail about God's deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt. And of course, this would be the second of those uh, um, Egyptian Hillel psalms. Spurgeon writes about this psalm, True poetry has here reached its climax. No human mind has ever been able to equal, much less to excel, the grandeur of this psalm. God is spoken of as leading forth his people from Egypt to Canaan and causing 
the whole earth to be moved at his coming. I love the way he writes that. Causing the whole earth to be moved at his coming. You know, there are times that we read the scriptures, we're familiar with the stories, and we've seen the Ten Commandments, whether it's the first version or the next or whatever it might be. You know, and we, we, we miss the incredible nature of all that was going on in the sense that God came to this earth. I mean, we, we, we talk about the burning bush, right? God appearing as a, as a, as a fire in that bush, and the bush wasn't consumed. But just the nature of God doing that and going forth before his people who delivered them from Egypt and all that he did, you know, it's like, it's just an incredible thing that God would choose to do that for his people. And I, 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 I think because of the familiarity of it, you know, and even as we read this this, this evening, um, that's one of the points I, I, I want to, I want for all of us to receive is just the question, ju- just the question, asking ourselves the question, am, am, am I too familiar or so familiar with the stories of the Bible, so familiar with Scripture itself, so familiar with being a Christian. After all, I've been a Christian for a few years now. I've been following the Lord for, for over 50 years at this point. But is it so familiar to us that it becomes something that is kind of, huh? You know what I mean? You, you know that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? For example, there are Christians in third world countries and in China or other places that would, oh, what's the right way to put this? I mean, they would give their right arm literally to have a Bible. How many Bibles do you have? You know what I mean? Because of our culture, that's a blessing to have the freedom that we do and to have the Bibles that we have. But has the familiarity with following Jesus, being a Christian, being a part of a church, all that that means, has it affected us in such a way that we don't have a fire for God anymore? Well, let's go ahead and read. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, two different ways of saying the same thing, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Judah, where Jerusalem is, became the sanctuary of God, that place of holiness. Sanctuary is a word that comes from the idea of holiness, being set apart. Judah was set apart to be the dwelling place of God. All of Israel became his dominion. The place where his people would be, the place where he would 
rule. Now we know that, I mean, earlier we said he, he is high above all nations, right? That is true, but all nations are not called his people. Israel is his people. So from that regard, it's, it, it's, it's obviously a bit different. But think of those terms, guys. Judah, all of Judah, Jerusalem in particular, where the temple was built, where the Temple Mount now is. And by the way, there's two buildings, two, two uh, um, Muslim buildings on top of the Temple Mount right now. One of them is is the Dome of the Rock, that very familiar dome that we that all the pictures you know from from uh, the the Mount of Olives from the east, the picture, the wall, and the Dome of the Rock behind it. it it's it's a Muslim structure. It 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 basically was built as a tomb. But there also is a mosque a few feet away from that, the Al the Al Aqsa Mosque, is the, these two buildings on top of the Temple Mount where God's temple once was. Now these were built right around 700 A.D., give or take 10 or 20 years. Um, they've been there a while. Obviously there when God brought his people back to Israel in 1948. But just thinking that this is the place, th this is his sanctuary and all of Israel is his dominion. Let's think about that in terms of scripture, in terms of Israel's history, in terms of even the current war that's going on. You know, God brought his people back in 1948, a fulfillment of Ezekiel's a prophecy of the dry bones in uh, Ezekiel 37. These bones receiving sinew and muscle and then flesh and, and all. Israel was dead, but he's going to bring them to life. And he brought his people back to Israel, just like that passage says he was going to do. Somewhere around 2,600 years later. Amazing. Amazing. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think that he brought them back so that a terrorist organization can destroy Israel? <laughs> yeah, right. No, I don't think so. Aside from that, we know prophetically that the temple is going to be rebuilt on that temple mount. What about those other buildings that are there? Well, that's a time for another discussion. People have been wondering about that for years, what, how that's all going to work. But point is, Judah is his sanctuary. Israel is his dominion. That has not changed, you know? So Israel is going to be okay. They've, they have endured a, a horrific attack back on October 7th. They're defending themselves now. And, and even as we're talking about that, I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard that there, there is a, uh, a, a deal. There was a deal that was brokered that there's going to be a, a pause or a lull in, in, in Israel uh, firing upon Hamas so that some um, 
hostages can be released, supposedly 50. We'll see if that all happens. But it's just a part of what they want. But I'm just saying all this because that's still God's people. That's Israel still is his dominion. And Hamas isn't going to interfere with that. It's caused some problems, but it's just a problem that will be resolved. But I don't want to make light of the incredible evil, the nature of the evil with which they have acted. All that to say, I think Israel is going to survive this. Going to verse 3. The sea saw it and fled. Okay, saw what? Well, saw that Judah is his sanctuary, Israel is his uh, dominion. And they saw something else that we're going to see a little bit later. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. So that, that's just simply a reference to the fact that, that um, the Red Sea parted so that Israel could march from Egypt you know, uh, toward the Promised Land. And we also see that Jordan, the Jordan River, was parted for about 40 years later so that the people of Israel can enter into Canaan. That's what that's all about. Verse 4, the, the, the mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. In Exodus 19, 18, now Mount Sinai, and this is when Moses was up on, the, on Mount Sinai receiving the, the Ten Commandments from the Lord. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And the people of Israel were scared out of their sandals. You know, I mean, it was because of what they saw. Their fear was exceedingly great. And we don't have a fear of God like that. We sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Now, there's truth to that song. There is. But there's also truth to the other. And the idea that God condescending toward us to become what he became, Jesus becoming a man, and our friend, I have called you friends, Jesus said, but we can't, we can't deny the incredible greatness and majesty and awe of his glory, his person. I mean, he steps foot on Mount Sinai and all this is happening, right? Psalm 29, verses 3 through 9. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. This is just speaking of... Uh, David writing this, speaking of God's voice. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. 
The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The, vo- the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. Just the voice of the Lord. So these descriptions of the power and might of God, this describes his voice. Verses 5 and 6, look at this. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams? O little hills, like lambs? You know, the question, what ails you? What, What happened? Why did you do this? The mountains skipping like rams, little hills like lambs. The sea seeing it and fleeing. Jordan turning back to the way it did. Why? What happened that you would do this? Of course, the writer personifying these um, uh, creations of God. Verse 7. Tremble, O earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. That's why. His presence. It's not the works that God did. You know, it, it's not the plagues. It's not the miracles. It's his presence. His presence. I think that's such an important part of this. You know, it, it, it's... They didn't see things, they saw him, their creator, ours as well, of course. But it's his presence. Psalm 97, verses 4 and 5, his lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The mountains melt like wax before him. The mountains tremble. Tomorrow morning, when when you step outside, look up at the mountains. I mean, we have some beautiful mountains just to the north of us here. They're pretty big. And we as people, we we gain a sense of power and might and the stability. It's like nothing can move those mountains, but... I mean, Jesus said if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can can command a mountain to move. I don't know about you guys. I've never been able to do that. Of course, I shouldn't say been able because I can't say that I've ever actually tried. (laughs) Have you, by the way? Mountain move. No. But the point is that these incredible uh, um, mountains and all of their stability, all of their strength, all of their power, they will not be moved, but God moves them. They quake. They tremble. James, in writing about uh, showing our faith by our works, in James 2, verse 19, he he wrote this, You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Demons tremble before him. So what about us today? What about God's church today? What about you and I individually today? 
Do we tremble at the mention of his name? Do we tremble knowing he's with us? You, you know, we, um, we have him within us. We're familiar with that thought. And again, I do believe that there's a way that that saying, familiarity breeds contempt, affects us in this regard. You guys know what I mean? The God that we serve is a mighty, powerful, awesome, majestic, uh, all-pervasive God. And we need to be reminded to bow before him in fear. You know, through all these things that God did, his works, his majesty, his power, were all on display. But I pray that we would meditate on his greatness, meditate on his majesty, meditate on his power, meditate on his righteousness, his holiness, all that he is, and just simply be incredibly amazed that this God has chosen to love us and to dwell within us. That's an amazing, amazing thing. It's insane, really, but it's true. It's what he has done. And Father, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts as we are before you tonight. Lord, uh, these truths are, gosh, in many ways beyond us because we, it's difficult for us to um, understand and, and conceive of you as the God that you are. We, we've, we've read your word, but we don't know what it's like to stand at the base of a, of, of a mountain that is quaking and smoking and lightning and the thundering and, 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 and the clouds and all, just simply because you're there. We're familiar with the fear that, that, that those Israelites felt at that moment. We're familiar with your love and your compassion grace and mercy that you have shown to us at the cross, Lord Jesus. And you indeed have become our friend. You've made us your friend because you gave your life for us. Thank you for that. God, help us not to overlook the incredible majesty and greatness of your person, of who you are. So, Lord, we bow before you. We worship you. We thank you that you've called us your friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.